pleasure to be here today, and uh, what a privilege to stand in this pulpit and to be with you to see what God's going to say to us. Uh, CMDA, you may not know much about it. It's the largest Christian professional membership organization in the world, and we've been in Bristol since 1994, but it actually started in Chicago. How do you combine your faith with the practice of health care? And I'm a great believer that the greatest mission field left in our country and many places around the world is in the office of my members who see people who trust them and uh, are in difficult situations dealing with illness and what a great opportunity to point people to Christ. You know, Christ could have done anything as he came to earth and he did three things. He preached, he teached, and he healed. And there's actually more written about him healing in the four gospels than there is about the other two put together. Uh, God met people at their point of need and then introduced them to his father. And uh, so CMDA has about 30,000 healthcare professionals we work with across the country. We've actually helped um, implement Christian Medical and Dental Association type groups in 80 other countries. And there's key, three key things we do. One is evangelism and discipleship. We're working on 270 medical and dental school campuses across the country, including ETSU, uh, where there's local student chapters and that are meeting every week, graduate groups, walking them throughout their medical career, teaching them how to share their faith with patients and how to grow in their faith and have a ministry in their practice. Uh, we're also very involved in medical missions, uh, not only in this country, but around the world. Over 800 of our members are career missionary doctors and nurses, uh, and we do a lot of things to help them as recruiting and training and ongoing uh, sus uh, sustaining them in their work. And then the third area is being the voice for our members on all those big bioethical issues you're hearing about on the news and speaking the truth and love into our culture, to the media, and to the government on issues like physician-assisted suicide and abortion and the new transgender issue that you're hearing a lot about. Uh, CMDA is there speaking as uh, healthcare professionals, as science from a biblical perspective. So that's what CMDA is about. As you leave today, you'll see uh, we got some books out there. They said, do you want a book table? And I thought, well, I guess I should, uh, since I've written some books, and CMDA uh, does a lot of uh, book writing. Uh, one of them is Jesus MD. They talk about Christ uh, doing so much healing. I thought it was interesting. Zondervan asked me to look at Christ from the perspective of him being the great physician, and what insights can we get from that, from, from the Bible? And it's also full of a lot of uh, illustrations and stories from my career as a medical missionary for 11 years and then doing relief work with Samaritan's Purse and taking medical teams to Somalia and Sudan and Bosnia and Rwanda during the genocide and those different places back during my cowboy days. And then there's another book out there called Leadership Proverbs. Uh, CMDA a few years ago was picked by the Christianity Today and the Christian Management Association is the best Christian workplace in the United States. I was amazed. I didn't think we were that good. But we've been uh, really focused on how do you do good leadership wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether it's your family or whether it's in business or ministry or whatever. And this book boils down a lot of those principles into Proverbs, like the book of Proverbs, very short and succinct, but pithy and full of information. So if you're interested in those, they're in the back. When I was thinking about Sunday morning today, it reminded me of a Sunday morning many years ago. Uh, I was in a place not nearly as nice as this. I was in Mogadishu, Somalia. It was December. 
It was hot, it was humid. I was there taking in the first medical relief team that Samaritan's Purse had ever done. It was a country totally in chaos. Some of you are too young to remember there was a civil war, there was famine, it was clans, tribalism as we say in Africa, uh, people being killed. Uh, it was survival of the fittest. If you went into Mogadishu, you would not find a hotel at that time. A restaurant open, there was no electricity, there was no running water, and this is in a, a city of over a half a million people. Um, and you couldn't get food to eat, but you could buy grenades and automatic weapons down at the market if you had the money, and you better, because if you didn't, you might not survive the next day. And I remember Franklin Graham called me on a, a Saturday and said, David, the, look at the television, the military's just landing, the UN's planning to go in, and somebody just said something that struck a chord with me. They said, more people are dying of health problems than are dying of starvation or war, and there's not one medical facility open in the whole city. So I had taken the first group in, and uh, it, we'd buy, we had rented a house. You had to have a house with a compound, a wall around it, uh, because you couldn't go anywhere or live anywhere in that city without armed guards. I've never done missionary work anywhere else where I had 10 guys with machine guns guarding us the whole time. And we've been out working in feeding centers and refugee centers and seeing people desperate for health care. Sunday morning was our first day off. We just arrived the week before. We were worn out. The heat was oppressive. No air conditioning uh, as far as the whole house went. And our team was there. And I, I, I slept in a little bit, got up about 7.30, got so hot you couldn't lie in bed any longer. And uh, as I was just finished getting dressed and was walking downtown, uh, downstairs, I heard a disturbance at the gate. Now, that's not what you wanted to hear in Mogadishu because uh, the clans, the, the warlords, would send a heavy truck, a dump truck. They'd mount weapons in the back of it, and they would just smash through the door of a humanitarian organization with guns blazing, shooting anybody in sight and stealing everything they had. And uh, sure enough, I heard some yelling and all of a sudden all our guards were pulling down their AK-47s and jacking a bullet in and I thought, I'm gonna die. I mean, it's gonna happen any minute now. These guys are gonna come in. And one of the guards near the gate went over and looked through the crack uh, between the gates and my, let out my breath as he put his gun down and lifted the bar and in came two Humvees full of American soldiers. Uh, some of the meanest, biggest looking guys I'd ever seen and I was seeing a lot of soldiers by then around Mogadishu. Uh, this uh, was, a, was a group that uh, parked under the only tree in our courtyard and the guy next to the head driver got out and kind of swaggered over to the door and I went down to meet him and he introduced himself. He says, my name's Colonel Worth. I'm a colonel in the special forces and this is my A-team. He said, we're out in a mission today and they told me down at headquarters as I was leaving that you wanted a, a security rep. He wanted a security briefing on the area of town where we were planning to go next week for clinics, whether it was safe enough to go without us getting shot. He says, I've come to, to give you that. And I said, well, come, come on in. And I took him upstairs. We had brought, we had a little generator and it could power one little small air conditioner. We had a little room we called Shangri-La. Shangri-La was where the air conditioner was and a little refrigerator that we could cool some drinks in. And I, I reached in there and pulled out a cold Coca-Cola. You know, they're the old glass bottles when there's so much humidity, it gets ice on the outside. That's what happened when I pulled that Coke out 
And Colonel Worth saw that, and you thought I had, I had given him a raise. I mean, he smiled, laid down his M16, took off his web belt, and uh, he wasn't going anywhere for a while. It was pretty obvious. I popped the bottle, gave it to him, and he gave me the security briefing. It didn't take very long. And as you do in other countries, I started asking questions, you know, where are you from and how would you get in the military? And after about five or ten minutes, uh, I, I, I got to this question. I said, Colonel Worth, I, I've never met anybody like you. I mean, I saw John Wayne in the movie, you know, the Green Berets, but I've never met a real one. And uh, I mean, how do you get in doing something like this? I mean, I guess the better question is, where do you find people that are willing to do stuff like this? It's dangerous, isn't it? He said, yeah, yeah, Dr. Stevens, it's, it's dangerous. He said, but you know, we look, well, I should say I look for five key characteristics for someone to see whether they should be in the Green Berets. And as he began to share those with me, I couldn't help but think that God is looking for those same characteristics in us. I remember when I was a kid, we uh, sung a little chorus. In fact, I teach it to my grandchildren. Uh, I'm in the Lord's army. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. You know, there's a lot of us willing to be in God's army, there's not many of us that are willing to be in his special forces, to go behind enemy lines where it's dangerous, where you could get killed, where you could be injured. And I don't mean, I mean that metaphorically. Metaphorically in the sense of willing to do the things that you're speaking for Christ that could get you in trouble. I have one of my members that just got thrown out of his hospital up in Boston. He's a urologist. He had the nerve to question why the hospital was so adamant about every employee marching in the gay pride parade. And they're a healthcare institution, and I'm dealing with these illnesses that are the result of these people's behavior. And I love them and I care for them, but we should not be promoting this lifestyle. The board dismissed him and got him thrown out of every hospital in Boston, and now they're trying to get his license taken away even though he spoke the truth in love. It's getting dangerous to be a Christian in our culture, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Because, you know, as I, as I talked to Colonel Worth, he talked about, you know, they, they collect intelligence in hostile countries. They, uh, they do special operations. They live off the country. They work with the local population, and, and all those things require a certain type of person. The first thing he said was this. He said, Dr. Stevens, I'm looking for volunteers. Volunteers who can be set apart in the military for special training and special ops. Volunteers. He says, you know, they say in the military you shouldn't volunteer for anything. You get yourself killed. He said, look out the window there. Those guys sitting there in those two Humvees, every one of them stepped forward and volunteered for this, knowing that it would be dangerous, not knowing where they would end up or what they would be doing, but they volunteered as I jotted that down on a piece of paper to remember it, I couldn't help but think of Romans 12.1, where it says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy. This is your spiritual act of worship. What's God saying? God's saying, I'm needing some volunteers here. Holy. You know what that word holy means? Set apart for a special purpose. That's what God's looking for. People like you and me 
we're willing to say, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Period. I don't, I don't know what's all involved the rest of my life, but I'm available and I'm willing. Some of the people that I know, most special people I know, are people that have done that. One that came to mind this morning was Jim Harrelson. You probably never met Jim Harrelson, but you know what he does. He's in charge of the Christmas Child Project for Samaritan's Purse. Been doing that for probably the last 15 years. Does a big job and a good job at it. But when I knew Jim, Jim and his wife, who were a nurse, were on the first team that I took into Mogadishu. They were an interesting couple because they had met when they had been working in Sudan and both been held hostage. Some of you younger girls wish you'd get some guy who really could talk to you and you'd really get to know him well. You know, guys just don't talk that much. Well, that's a great way to do it because you're in a room for months on end. And uh, that's how they got to know each other. And after they were released, they got married, took a short honeymoon, and then continued it in Mogadishu. Mogadishu got so dangerous after Black Hawk Down we made our team smaller. Jim was still there running things. It got so dangerous that if he left the compound, even with armed guards in a Land Rover, he had to hide under a blanket in the back because they were kidnapping any Western people they saw and hold them for hostage if they didn't shoot him. And Jim still stayed. I remember flying out of Mogadishu with him months earlier. We were going to get supplies and talk to officials in Nairobi. We were in the back of a Canadian Air Force C-130, could barely hear each other, but we were talking, and I can see Jim with tears flowing down his face talking about his passion for the people of Somalia and this, this country of over 7 million people that were only known of 500 Christians, radically Muslim. You go and share your faith in Mogadishu, somebody will pull a pin on a grenade and stick it in your pocket. And yet... Our team was doing that in these feeding centers and camps as we saw patients. You think about that person and you think, oh man, that's great. I'm glad he's doing that. But man, I could never do that. I could never do that. You know what Jim's qualifications were? He was an investment banker from New York. But one day God got a hold of him and began moving in his heart and saying, I want you to go to the world. And he's going to he's saying, Lord, I, I'm an investment banker. I just know about finance. Are you willing? Are you willing? God used him to change, change tens of thousands of lives. And he, he probably thought he couldn't do it. You, you know why? When I think about that, I think about when I was in Africa and doing cataract surgery. I'm the family practice doc, but we didn't have any ophthalmologists, and so I learned to do the surgery. And if I was doing that surgery on you, I'd, you know, lens is opacified, you can't see out, I'd make a little semicircular incision after giving you anesthesia and reach in there, pull out that opacified lens. And before I closed, I'd take a little ecliptical piece of plastic. It's perfectly clear, refracts just at the right amount, and slip that in there, and when I sewed it back and it healed, you'd be able to read and see because that lens was in there. What's that lens made out of? It's made out of stinky, sticky oil. You wouldn't want to get it on you. But what's happened is that somebody has taken that oil and 
separated and purified it and melded it and molded it into something that is extremely useful can give you sight for the rest of your life. Let me let you in on a clue. God's not looking for people with certain capabilities, certain expertise. God is looking for volunteers, and then he's going to melt and mold and make you into what he's designed you to for service. You don't have to be articulate. God can use you to witness to your backdoor neighbor. Maybe the next Billy Graham, who knows? He's looking for volunteers. The scriptures say, choose this day who you will serve. And God's asking all those questions. I want you in my special forces. I want you to be my voice into this culture, into your community, into your world. Second thing Colonel Wertha said was this. I'm looking for, for men that are fiercely loyal to their commander and to their country. He said, you see those guys out there? I could tell them we're going to go into the, through the door of hell and they'd all go in guns blazing, no questions asked. That's how loyal they are. No matter how dangerous it is, no matter how desperate the situation, they follow orders. Reminded me back in the Old Testament, you remember the Israelites, every time you turned around, they were worshiping other gods and intermarrying with other groups. And, and David's praying for his people, and he says in 1 Chronicles 29, 19, Lord, keep their hearts loyal to you. It was the big issue, and it's the big issue for us as well. We can come to church on Sunday. We can sit in Sunday school class. We can agree with everything that is said. But the question is, are we going to follow orders? And what did he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And then he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what God is expecting of each one of us. It's not for someone just like me that went halfway around the world, because you're a missionary where God's placed you. He may stir you up and take you halfway around the world. My youngest daughter and her husband and two other grandkids, five and two, are in a very dangerous area in North Africa where ISIS just blew somebody up at their supermarket. A guy dressed up in a burqa like a woman and blew himself up at the door of the market. It's dangerous. You know why they're there? It's not because they want adventure. It's there because God said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they are taking what God said and do it. He called them there. They've gone. Miserable place. It's 115 degrees there today, and they have no air conditioning. God didn't say it was going to be easy, but he said, are you loyal? Are you loyal to what I've asked you to do? When I was at World Medical Missions, we used to send doctors all around the world to help in mission hospitals for a month. I remember I got a call from a pediatrician, single lady. She was probably mid-50s at that time. She says, you know, I've never done missions before, but God's been speaking to me, and, and uh, I, th I think I should go. And, and so I started looking at our list of hospitals and what their needs were. And the only place that had an opening at that time for a pediatrician was in the Congo. Congo's not a very easy place to go. I mean, just getting out of the city, you can <laughs> have all kinds of problems with officials and bribery and all sorts of stuff. And I, I explained that to her, and yeah, she prayed about it for a week or two. Finally, yeah, I think I should go. I think I should go. And, and so, okay, we made the arrangements. And then about every two days, sometimes every day, I get a call from Mary. We'll call her Mary. She had a question. In fact, it was the question she'd asked yesterday, I'd already answered. She was so nervous. She was so concerned. She was so afraid. 
I turned to my assistant and said, she's not, she's not going to get on that plane. It's just not going to happen, and it's probably for the best. I, I don't know how she would do there. But lo and behold, the day came, she got on the plane, and I thought she'll probably be back on the next one. I didn't hear anything from her for two weeks, and I finally got a letter back in the days before email. She said, Dr. Stevens, you know how scared and nervous I was. She says, I, I, I really was. She said, I had this, this battle between my faith and my security. Can, can I really trust God? What if something happened? I'm a single woman in this country. Anything could happen. She says, I've gotten here and I found out something. My faith is my security. See, I can trust God because he's with me. Are you loyal? Third thing Colonel Worth said was this. I'm looking for men that are highly trained and prepared to carry out the task. He said, uh, we train all the time. He said, we were training yesterday before this mission. He said, you see the big guy out there standing behind the machine gun? He's our heavy weapons specialist. And next to him is the, the corpsman. And the other guy in the seat next to him is our communications expert. And, uh, this dozen guys, they all have specialties, but then they're all cross-trained. If one guy gets shot or injured, somebody else can step in. He says, we're the best of the best. We have to be because of what we do. He said that. I remembered Paul and what he said over in Acts 22.3. He says, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained, talking about why he was the greatest missionary that ever lived. He had prepared. He had studied even though he killed Christians and persecuted them, when God called him and he came to faith in Christ, he was prepared. God had gotten him ready before he even was one of his children. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourselves approved unto God, a workman that need not be afraid. I don't care what you do, whether you're a mom at home, whether you have a job and work somewhere, you should be the absolute best you should be at, it can be at your job. I tell my docs, if you should be the best physician or dentist possible. And if you're not, don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Because often our competency enables us to have a platform to share our faith. And secondly, we should be competent at sharing our faith, shouldn't we? You know, I can never do that. I don't know where to start. When I came to CMDA, we, we're a Christian organization, been around about 60 years at that time, 85 now. And, um, you know, a lot of Christian docs that believe the Bible and went on mission trips and whatever, but were afraid to talk to their patient about their faith. So we put together a training course called Grace Prescriptions. How to raise faith flags, tell faith stories, how to share your testimony, how to build a relationship with the local church, how to get the church involved in your practices. I have docs that have their pastor or associate pastor come in and do counseling in their church every week in one of their exam rooms with patients they refer to them. It's about time that Paul and Luke got back together. Remember, Luke was the physician, Paul was the missionary, Luke traveled with him. We've trained over 20,000 healthcare professionals worldwide. And through their competency and knowing how to do that in the little bit of time they have and do it with permission and do it appropriately because of their powerful position, it's exciting to see God use these healthcare professionals, often meeting people at the crossroads to heaven before they die, able to address faith issues, take spiritual histories, and become God's missionaries across this country and around the world.
Fourth thing Colonel Worth said was this. He said, uh, well, by now he's calling me Dave and he's on his third Coke. I think he's going to drink them all that we had. He said, Dave, uh, I, I don't know how to explain this, but I'm looking for men that really care about people. I laughed. I said, look, you see the guys out there? It's like if you met them in a dark alley, they just tear your head off and give it to you. I mean, these guys, they were big and brawny and all camouflage painted and everything. He said, yeah, 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 they're tough. But you haven't seen them like I've seen them. You know, we go behind enemy lines. We work with the indigenous people and, and train them. And I mean, we were in this village, let me tell you. And he told me the country, he said, kids were sick. People were dying. They didn't have clean water. The kids were getting diarrhea and vomiting and dehydrated. You see the corpsman out there? He stayed up, I don't know how many nights, with a medicine dropper trying to get fluids, oral rehydration solution into these babies that were, were dying. And, and a bunch of guys got together, led by our heavy weapons specialist, the big guy over there. They dug him a well. It was 60 foot deep. They did it by hand with a shovel because they genuinely cared about the people. He said, being tough's not enough. Before we took the first team into Mogadishu, I went on an exploratory trip. Gunfire going off the night I arrived. I was sleeping on a roof under a cot under a mosquito net, and planes were landing, the military coming in, grenades going off. I, I remember talking to the Lord that night saying, what is a man with three children in the middle of this mess? The next morning I got up and I, I thought, you know, I, I, first thing I need to do is understand what the illnesses are, what problems we would face. And I left so quickly, all I had was my stethoscope, so I put it around my neck and found somebody who could drive me in New English as a translator. And we went down to a place where there were refugees. It was called Buwali Camp. It was the Buwali clan from the inner part of Mogadishu who had fled the famine and come into the city looking for food. And they, they just had built hovels behind a, a gas station, a petrol station, as we'd say in Africa, and it had been looted by someone, and, and they just taken sticks and whatever they could find and built these little huts to keep the sun off of them during the day and put in pieces of plastic or paper or whatever. And, and so I got to the first one, and I had to get down on my knee to see in. It was so low, and, and I looked in, and there was a lady sitting there. Now, I'd seen people that were malnourished. I mean, I worked with them all the time, but I'd never seen a lady like this. I mean, you could count every bone in her body. And she was sitting there and she was trying to nurse a baby. I remember thinking to myself, Mama, you haven't had any milk for that baby in weeks. I mean, you have nothing to give that baby. But she was trying to comfort the child, shaking it a little bit. And it was under a dirty rag and I, I, I pulled the rag back. And if I thought the mother was malnourished, this child looked like a skeleton with cellophane wrapped around it. I mean, the skin was so translucent, you could literally see the baby's heart through the skin. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Child was breathing very rapidly, and, and so I, I put my stethoscope on, and I, I gently laid it on the child's chest just to confirm the child had a pneumonia, which was obviously what was probably going on. And the child was breathing probably 100 times a minute, and, 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 and as I did that, all of a sudden, the child just took a, a gasp and died. I just squatted there for a second, and the mom was so out of it because of her starvation, she didn't even notice it. It was probably just a minute or two, but it seemed like forever. And finally, she looked down and realized the baby was dead. 
And she, she took the rag and put it over the child's face and just patted it. And then got up very haltingly and out and started walking over to across the way. You could see an empty lot, nothing on that block. And she got down on her hands and knees and laid her precious little bundle down and started digging like a dog to dig a grave for a child. And as you looked over there, you could see other people with their bundles, big bundles, small bundles. And that heat, you had to bury people immediately. And people were, were just dying. And I, I turned to my translator and I said, I, I've, I've worked in Africa for years. When a mother loses a child, she, she wails. I, I've seen them tear their clothes, run through the hospital. I've seen them tear out their hair, their agony of the loss of that precious child. And this woman has not even shed a tear. I've never seen anything like this. He looked at me and said, no, Bonnie, you, you don't understand. This woman had 11 children. They're all dead. This is the last one. She doesn't have any more tears. And I went to the next hovel, and it was the same thing, and the next hovel, the same thing, and I, I jumped back in my car, and I went back to where I was staying, and I got out my, my doc kit, and I brought some medicines in case I got sick, and I started breaking open ampicillin capsules and crushing tablets and, and, and going from hovel to hovel, giving it, mix it with some water, give it to the kids as they died, and they died, and they died. You know, and as I began to process that afterwards, God just began speaking to me. He says, Dave, you... You've been here taking care of people in Africa for years. You've seen so much suffering. Your heart has gotten hard. It's just an, another illness you have to tackle. You forget what I see is I see these people, these adults going into eternity, these children suffering, and the tears flowing down my face. If you could just see the world like I see it, your heart would be broken. And it was true. It was true. And it's true for you too. I, know, I have to be careful. I'm the same way the latest disaster, the latest famine, the latest war comes on. I'm flipping through the channels and go, golly, where's the ball game? I don't even want to think about it. And yet God wants us to have hearts that are truly compassionate and to see the world as he sees it. And if we do, we're moved do something about it. And it's not just halfway around the world. It's maybe the undocumented immigrants in our country or the Syrian refugees that everybody says, let's just don't let them in. Is that what God would say? Last thing Colonel Worf said was this. Got up and picked up his M16, put on his web belt, and as he's leaving, he looked at me and he said, the last thing, Dave, I'm looking for men that are bold, bold. He says, you know what we're doing today? I said, no, I'm, you sure you can tell me without shooting me? <laughs> he said, we're chasing General Adid's technicals out of the city. I knew what technicals were. They were pickup trucks like a Datsun, small pickup trucks. They had mounted machine guns on or recoilless rifles. It was their heavy artillery for the clans that were warring against each other. He said, a number of us A-teams, our job is to chase them out of the city and up towards Ethiopia. He says, we have no air support. We have no artillery support yet. It's just us guys. And he said, uh, my goal is to get them across the border. We're going to go up there and kick some 
will go on. And they looked like they were going to do it too. He said, I need men that are bold. You know, if you read over in Acts 13, 14, it's one of Paul's missionary journeys, and it talks about he and Barnabas and said they were in Antioch and Pisidia, and the Jews talked abusively to them, and then it says, then and Paul and Barnabas grew bold. Don't you like that? <laughs> they went on to Iconium, and they said, you guys shut up or we're going to stone you. So it says they spoke more boldly. Then they went to Lystra, and at Lystra they took Paul, stoned him, dragged him out of the city, and left him for dead. What did Paul do? He got on the phone, called his mission organization, and said, you guys got to get me home. These people don't like me. Is that what he did? No, you read the end of that chapter, it says, then the word of the Lord began to spread throughout the whole region. You see, the greatest risk often bring the greatest rewards for God's kingdom. The easy places have already been taken care of. Witnessing to your boss may be the most dangerous thing you need to do. That could get you in trouble real quick, couldn't it? Or maybe across the backyard fence to your neighbor. God needs you to have some boldness to build a relationship and begin to dig and find out their needs and look for that opportunity to share the gospel with them. And perhaps God will give you the opportunity to lead them to himself. I'm not a particularly bold person. I've done some crazy things, but I'm not particularly bold. I've crashed in an airplane. I've been shot at in Mogadishu. Learned how to duck real quick. Been in Sudan, had our team held hostage. Crazy stuff back in my cowboy days. But when I get in those situations, and now it's going on the media doing Fox News or CNN or whatever and talking about a very controversial subject and baiting somebody from the other side. And those moments, I, I always think back to a story which helps put it all in perspective. My dad was an evangelist, godly man, spoke all across the country in revivals and camp meetings and raised on that. Sometimes people say, you really, you, I know your dad, you preach like your dad. I say, well, you would too if you had sat through as many of his sermons as I did. Mom and Dad used to come out. We had three little reasons they liked to come to Kenya when we were missionaries there, Jason, Jessica, and Stacy. And um, Dad would always arrive, come to the front door, and say the same thing. Well, I'm here spending your inheritance. Figure I'm going to enjoy it with you instead of you enjoying it after I'm gone. He loved to go to the hospital. In World War II, he had been a, uh, worked in the medical corps as a typist on the ward, ward clerk. And he's fascinated with medicine, was so glad when God called me into medical missions. And so when he came, I, he'd always want to go up to the hospital with me. And I'd take him on rounds. I remember one day I was taking a, a long African thorn out of the bottom of somebody's foot. And I was just getting ready for the last stitch. And the guy was moving his foot. And I said to Dad, Dad, reach under that sterile drape. Just hold his leg still. It's not worth giving him another injection. I just need one more stitch. And the next time I came home, we were out speaking somewhere together. He had turned that into a three-point sermon every place this man's feet had been or something. I don't know. It was a really good sermon. It was just an average day of my life. One time he came out and I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do this time? I'm going to um, have dad deliver a baby. <laughs> he never, I'll be a story to tell. And uh, so I went over and talked to the nurses. I said, we need a grand mole tip. Now that's, for you don't know, that's somebody's head already, lady's already had 10 or more. And uh, by that point, it's just kind of a grunt and the baby's there. This would be easy. 
I said, I'll be there and make sure everything goes all right and we'll get the ladies' permission and everything. And the nurses, they knew my dad and they were all for it. You know, that was going to be great. So I went to dad and said, uh, Dad, how would you like to deliver a baby? <laughs> I couldn't deliver a baby. I don't know anything about delivering babies. No, dad, it's not, it's not hard. Women do it all the time. I mean, half of them do it out in the garden at their house, at their hut. You just, you know, it, it's easy. I'll be there with, no. No, son, they didn't even let me in the delivery room when you were born. I don't know anything about delivering babies. It took me a whole day to convince him. Finally, okay, 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 okay. If you really want me to, I will. So the next day uh, at lunchtime, Dad had already gone down the hill, and I was finishing up some notes, and one of the nurses comes running from OB. Dr. Stevens, you need to get your dad up here quick. I mean, if this woman coughs, we're going to have a baby. I was like, so I call down the hill. Dad, you need to get up here quick. This baby's coming. My dad was 64. We lived at 6,800 feet higher in Denver, up in the highlands of Kenya, and he ran a half mile up the hill. That was his first delivery. He had to get there quick. He got there. He was colors I'd never seen a human being before. He was bent over. He was panting, and he could just say, I just can't do it. Anymore. I just can't do it. I said, come on, Dad. And I could hear this lady. She was kind of doing this chant that the local tribal women did when they were in labor, and it's, it, it almost sounded like, ooey, ooey, and as they go, ooey, 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 you know it's coming, and I could hear her, she was revved up, this baby was just about to get there, so I'm half carrying my dad over to the maternity ward, and get him there, get his hands washed, get the mask on, get the gloves on, get the apron on, and got him in the catcher's position, it's going to be great. My dad's going to deliver this baby. So I said, now, Dad, when that head comes out, you know, you can put one hand under, one hand on top. Then the baby's going to rotate, and then we just deliver the top shoulder and the bottom shoulder and just bring it up on your arm. It's really easy. I'm here. Everything's going to be fine. And Dad's sitting there, and his hands are just shaking like this. Okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. And I say, tagil, tagil in Push, push hard. And so the woman starts to push, and dad just freezes his eyes get as big as saucers and i thought oh my goodness we're gonna have this baby in the bucket it's gonna go right down there on the floor and and i grabbed his left hand and stuck it in my left hand and his right hand in my right hand and i began to guide him and, and got that the shoulder and the bottom shoulder and reached around and got it up on his arm i said dad don't 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 you drop that baby okay 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 and i'm hanging on to one arm while he's trying to hold now now dad get over here and get the get the forceps and okay now clamp got it okay the cord now get the other one clamp right next to it okay now dad you understand you cut between the clamps oh okay 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 he cuts it and, and now just grab him by the heels and give him a little pat on the rump oh my goodness right on cue this baby just lets out this beautiful cry mama's smiling it's number 13 she's still happy and 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 the nurses are smiling my dad was grinning so big you could see it behind his mask i mean he had never had an experience like this he had brought a new life into the world but ladies, if he was still alive, I wouldn't you advise letting him deliver your baby? Because he knew nothing about it. The only reason he could do it was why? It's because I was there. See, God's going to ask you to do some things as you follow him and his special forces, and you're going to say, Lord, I don't know how. I, don't, I can't do that. You know what God's going to say? Put your hand in my hand. I've been there. I'm with you on this. I'm not asking you to do anything by yourself. I'm going with you. Yeah, it may seem dangerous. It may seem like I don't know how to do it. I lack the expertise, but this is what I want you to do. And as part of my special forces, you can do it with me. The Bible is so clear in this area. It says, when we trust him, we're free to say whatever needs to be said, bold to go wherever needed to go. 
The Lord is my helper, Hebrews 13, 16. And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. What promises of his presence as he goes with us? So here's my question to you. Are you willing to volunteer? Are you loyal? Are you going to do what he told you to do? Are, are, you, are you willing to be trained to serve him well? To really care compassionately about people and go with boldness, not in your old boldness, but the boldness that only comes for Christ. I was out at Focus on the Family a number of years ago and preached this sermon to a large group. Dr. Dobson was there. And afterwards, a big burly guy came up. He weighed probably 250 and it was all muscle. And he looked at me and said, uh, Dr. Stevens, uh, I'm Dr. Dobson's bodyguard. I was in the special forces. I thought, oh my, I hope I said the right thing. He said, I want to show you something. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out something that looked just like this. He said, this is a challenge coin. He said, everybody in the special forces carry one. I was in the special forces. He said, if you find someone else that was in the special forces, you reach in your pocket, you carry it all the time, and you throw it to the ground. It's a challenge. And they pull theirs out and throw it on the ground as well. You know what it means? It means they're still committed. If they got a call that day, they would go, even though they're out of the military now. He says, I want you to see what it says on the back of that. And he handed it to me. You know what it said? Anything, anytime, anywhere. That's what God wants from us. That willingness to do whatever he asks us to do, to be his voice, his presence into people's lives, and to point them towards him. You may be the best chance your neighbor is ever going to have to hear about Christ. The people down at work where you are, at the grocery store, at the gas station, or maybe God's going to call you halfway around the world to somewhere else. I don't know. But your commitment should still be the same. Anything. Anytime. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is serious business you've given us to do. So it's easy to get distracted by the good things of everyday life and the problems that we have with family and community. And, and yet, we don't want to forget the most important thing, that we're your ambassadors. We're your special forces to carry the gospel to the world. It doesn't have to be everyone, just the one you put in front of us. Lord, give us that boldness. Give us that willingness. Give us that desire to be competent to point people towards you. And Lord, give us the blessing of leading them there. And we'll give you praise in your son's name.